As we turn to your word this morning, Holy Spirit, we look for your help. We ask for your help. We ask that you would lift up Christ for us, that you would strengthen us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As Jesus hung dying on the cross that day, two criminals hung one on either side of him. And the criminals mocked Jesus along with Israel's chief priests and scribes and elders and along with Rome's soldiers. Matthew 27 tells us some of the things they said. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if God desires. And the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. At some point during this ordeal, one criminal broke ranks with his buddy and with the crowd. And in Luke 23, we read what this criminal said. Do you not fear God? He says to his buddy, the other criminal. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation... And we, indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm not ex exactly sure what caused this man to go from reviling and mocking Jesus to pleading with him for entrance into Jesus' kingdom. Perhaps it was how Jesus endured the treatment, how he manage the pain. Or maybe it was Jesus's simple prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Or maybe it was this statement, we're condemned because we've done something wrong, but this man has done nothing wrong. I want you to keep these two criminals in view this morning as we walk through this passage in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. If you've walked with Christ for a while, you know how encouraging Romans chapter 8 is, and that's why we want to spend the next five weeks looking through it carefully. But I want you to keep these two criminals in mind, because hanging between them was God's Son, dying there for the sins of the world, laying down his life as a good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. One criminal denied him along with most of the Jewish nation and the Roman army. The other criminal accepted him with a simple plea, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Both condemned criminals died that day, but one received this promise from the dying lips of Jesus. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a hard truth to swallow, but the Bible identifies each one of us, you and me, as guilty. For example, in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Both of these criminals dying next to Jesus were guilty. Jesus offers one of them entrance into paradise from condemnation to life. Paul begins this hair-raising chapter of Romans chapter 8 with a bold declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how do we go from condemned criminals, from rebellious sinners to recipients of eternal life like this one criminal? How do we get to a place where Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom, where he assures us that we will be with him in paradise, that to close our eyes in death is to see him forevermore? In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, Paul gives us three reasons why the condemnation has vanished. Why for those who are in Christ, the condemnation is no more. And here's my main idea this morning. There's no condemnation to dread. Anticipate everlasting life instead. You don't often get a rhyming main idea, but you got it this morning. (laughs) Three reasons why the condemnation has vanished. The first reason is because we've been set free by the Son. Because we've been set free by the Son. Verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 8. Look at the first two verses. There is therefore, he's building on all that's come before, but specifically the first six verses of chapter 7 and the last two verses of chapter 7. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law was the path of obedience that makes it possible for people to live with a righteous God. Because God longed to live with his people, even as people who had been tarnished and broken and affected by their own sin, because he longed to live with us, he gives Moses instructions on how his people need to live in order for him to dwell with them. Now, if you're looking for a helpful summary of the law, Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, so whatever you wish the others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If you want a helpful summary of the law and the prophets, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is a good summary of the law and the prophets. The problem, of course, was that sinful people couldn't obey the law. It was too hard. It was too weighty. And Paul describes the law in verse 2 in two ways. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. And between those two are this phrase, set free in Christ Jesus. There aren't two laws. Paul's not saying there are two laws. He's discussing God's law in two different ways. On the one side is the law that's mixed with human sinfulness, and this leads to death, the law of sin and death. On the other side is the law mixed with the Spirit's power, and the law mixed with the Spirit's power leads to life. It is the law of the Spirit of life, and the Spirit of life uses Jesus' work in Christ Jesus to set us free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit uses Jesus' work in his life, in his death, to set us free from the law of sin and death. So here's the summary. We are condemned under the law of sin and death. We had a penalty and a punishment coming. We've been condemned. But we are set free by the Son through the powerful work of the Spirit. How specifically? Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by sinful flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now, very soon, we're going to be longing for the easy days of David's narrative as we look at the complicated argument that Paul is making in Romans chapter 8. 
But he's saying that we are set free because God did something. Because that God did for us what the law could not do. And the Christian's relationship with the law is one of the most confusing things for us to understand. Here are just a few points. First, the law of God is good. Psalm 1, for example, verse 2, Blessed is the man whose delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law meditates day and night. The law of the Lord can delight the heart of God's people. It is worth meditating on God's law both night and day. The law in of itself is not bad. The law is good. Here's the second point. The law was technically able to bring life. Technically speaking, the law could bring life to God's people. For example, Leviticus 18.4, God says, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Law is good. The law could technically bring life. But as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 3, the law was weakened by the flesh. Flesh here equals human beings, not so much sinful desires, but the flesh we live in, the fact that we inhabit bodies. This is the point that Paul makes. God did what the law couldn't do because the law was weakened by people, and people are sinful, and that's what makes the law deficient. That's what makes the law unable to save. So here's the formula that didn't work. God's good law Plus, sinful human beings equals death. That's the formula. But because God wanted to save us, he did what the law, weakened by human beings and our sin, could not do. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And at Jesus' incarnation, he takes on the likeness of sinful flesh. He, he looks like a human being. He takes on what it is to be human. And he came for sin. Very simply, Jesus came for sin. It is a simple truth. It's basic and it is so good. Jesus Christ came for sin. He came in the flesh to do something about sin. He came to free us because we could not free ourselves. For us, the law becomes a death sentence. So God condemns sin in the flesh, in Jesus, meaning that he condemned Jesus who was our substitute. This is the point that Hebrews 2 is trying to make, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. And then verse 17 of Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to satisfy the wrath of God that was justly being poured out on his people. That's why Jesus came like a person, so that he might die in our place. And here's the new formula. The formula that didn't work was God's good law plus sinful human beings equals death. The formula that does work, God's good law plus Jesus equals life for all who believe. 
God's law plus Jesus equals life for all who believe. Jesus fulfilled the law for us in our place. He obeyed in our place through his sufficient life. Don't discount the righteous life that Jesus lived. He's fulfilling the law for us. And in his death, he is absorbing the condemnation that was ours, the consequence that was ours, his sufficient life, his glorious death. These things allow Jesus to serve as our substitute. And the result is glorious. Look at verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we'll talk about that in a moment. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus' death is so effective, so glorious, so total, so utterly complete that it results in the righteous requirements of the law being fulfilled in us. Jesus fulfills the law for us. And so we no longer walk in the power of our own human limitations. We walk in the power of God's powerful spirit. We are freed from the condemnation of the law and now we can keep the law's demands in the sight of God. Keeping the law is bad when we try to employ law keeping in order to be accepted by God. Instead, Romans 8 is calling us to believe on Jesus who did this in our place. Now let's talk about parenting for a minute. Parents, the way that we provide rules and the ways that we expect obedience build and inform and impact our children's view of God. If we aren't clear about what we expect, or if we do not follow through when rules are broken, then we instruct our kids that obedience to authority is optional and that God is endlessly tolerant. We can play easy with the rules in a way that confuses our children about who God is. Or, if we're exasperating and demanding, if we create long lists of endless rules and exact over-the-top consequences when our children fall short, then we instruct our children that God is endlessly displeased with us. He's either endlessly tolerant or he's endlessly displeased with us. So what's the better way? Now, whether God has given us children or we're helping other people disciple their children, all of these things are helpful for all of us. Here are a few points. How do we do this well? What's a better way than leading our kids to believe that God is endlessly tolerant or endlessly demanding? First, do our children know why obedience to godly authority is satisfying and life-giving? Do they know why submission to godly authority is good? Second, do our children know the difference between house rules and God's rules? Or do they grow up thinking that God has this enormous list of rules? God doesn't have a curfew for you. God doesn't say don't burp at the table. There are a lot of rules that are house rules that are not God's rules. And part of parenting is helping our kids understand the difference between the two. Both are important for our children to understand. But there is a difference. If you want to know more about that, there's a great book called Conscience. And in that, there's a chapter on parenting that's fantastic. Number three, do we shame or belittle our children when they disobey rules 
and we must provide a consequence. Is that conversation with that child marked by shaming or belittling? Do they walk away from that feeling those things? Number four, do we labor to show our children that obedience to God is not possible in their own strength? That obedience to God is vital, but also impossible in our own strength. Do we use those conversations with our children to call on them to respond in faith to the gospel and to seek the power of the Spirit to obey God? Number five, do we convince our children of our unconditional love even when they mess up, especially when they mess up? Do they understand that our love for them is immovable regardless of what they do? Number six, when it's time to reconcile with our children, when they say they're sorry for what they've done, do we reconcile them with them at the heart level or do we let them walk away from that interaction holding on to guilt or to shame? These are all opportunities for evangelizing and discipling our children. We can help our kids to see an alternative. There is a way of living in opposition to God and to godly authority that leads to painful condemnation. But oh, there is a way of living in community with God and godly authority that leads to a joyful, happy life. And children here, you should know, and teenagers, the adults in this room are not always going to get this right because we're also sinners who are being shepherded by God as we seek to shepherd you. The first reason that condemnation is gone is because the Son has set us free. The second reason that condemnation is gone is because we've been welcomed by the Father. This is verses 5 through 8. Look at verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There are two ways that Paul says we live. Either we live according to the flesh or we live according to the Spirit. And what does Paul mean by flesh here? He's using it as a contrast to those who are living according to the Spirit. Very simply, he's talking about non-Christians. Those who are in the flesh, those who are only natural, those who are unsaved versus Christians, those who are spiritual, those who have been saved, both condemned, one now saved, one still walking in the flesh. So if you live your life according to the flesh, Paul says, then you will set your minds on the things of the flesh. If you are not a Christian, then you'll spend your time thinking about natural things, things that you can taste and see and touch. Or, if you live your life according to the Spirit, then you'll set your minds on the things of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you'll spend your time thinking about some things that you can't see and touch and taste. And so Christians, spirit people, will be consumed with living by faith, driven by an eternal, now invisible kingdom. That's what's driving Christians. They're consumed by the things of the Spirit. Now look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit of is life and it's peace. Two kinds of people, those who are in the flesh, those who are in the spirit, Christians, non-Christians, and there are two outcomes for these two people. There is no room for moral neutrality. Those who set their minds on the flesh, on natural earthly things alone will experience death. Why? Because they're refusing to see the world from the Creator's perspective. They're persisting 
in rebellion. And if you're a kingdom rebel, then you will think about rebellion. No reference to God, no submission to the Creator. Your mind is consumed with your own will and desires and ways, even if you are also thinking rightly about the people around you. In the end, you refuse God His kingly reign and live a life like a kingdom rebel, consumed with thinking like a rebel, which Paul says leads ultimately to death. Now, on the other side are people freed from condemnation, those who are likewise sinners, likewise in rebellion against God, but they have been freed from condemnation and have become God's kingdom subjects, no longer kingdom rebels, but kingdom subjects. And they are happy subjects in God's kingdom, blessedly under His reign and rule, not as we've just seen because of any work they've done, but because of who they believe in and trust. Kingdom subjects now think about serving and worshiping the king. Their minds are consumed by the king's mind. They hunger after the king's will and purposes. They seek to emulate the king's heart and his ways. These kingdom subjects long to obey the king's laws and instructions. And according to verse 6, they set their mind on the spirit. And those who do, do not experience death, but life and peace. Now look at verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He's explaining here why one leads to death and one path leads to life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the reason I chose Kingdom Rebels is not to be inflammatory, but to capture the sense of what Paul is saying here. There is no moral neutrality. You're either with the king or you're against the king. Kingdom rebels live according to the flesh. To ignore and to deny God is not morally neutral. If you ignore and deny the authority of your teacher, then you're living like a rebel. How much more so toward the God who created and loved us and created us for a relationship with him marked by the joy of beauty and love. Paul wants us to see here that to live only according to ourselves and only according to our kingdom is hostility toward God. We don't submit to God's law. And Paul says, indeed, we can't submit to God's law because rebels haven't yet been set free by the love of Christ. Their relationship to God's law is still one that leads to death, not the life that the Spirit brings to his people. And notice where Paul ends. Those who are in the flesh, that is, non-Christians, kingdom rebels, cannot please God. We're unable to meet the righteous requirements of the law that God makes possible through his son, Jesus. We can't find life. We can't please him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I wonder if this is connecting in any way. Every one of us in this room looks at this room and acknowledges that there was a designer, that there was an architect who had a vision for this room before it came into existence. Can we really maintain that there is no creator of creation? If we can agree that this room has a designer, then can we really maintain that creation has no creator? 
And doesn't the Creator have the right to explain His intentions for His design of creation? And doesn't the Creator have the right to set the rules of this life? And God has said that we've broken the rules and we are by definition in rebellion against Him. And thankfully, God is a just God because He doesn't look the other way when His people sin against Him and each other. There is a just consequence for our turning away from Him, and that consequence, Paul says, is condemnation. But praise God, He loves kingdom rebels. Praise God, Jesus came to die for kingdom rebels, that he came to die not after we cleaned ourselves up, not, while, not after we transformed ourselves into kingdom subjects. Jesus came to die for us while we were yet God's enemies. Here's Pastor Sinclair Ferguson. He says, we're not naturally capable of loving God for ourselves. That's not naturally in us. Indeed, we hate God. But in discovering this about ourselves and in learning of the Lord's supernatural love for us, love for the Father was born. In discovering and becoming self-conscious to the fact that I am living in rebellion against my Creator and in knowing that my Creator, in spite of my rebellion, loves me first, love for the Father is born in our hearts. And I've been praying that you would see at the one time the reality of your rebellious heart and the reality of God's love for sinners. And kids, this is for you too. Because while we were still sinners, that's all of us, Christ died for us. And kingdom subjects can please God. We can receive a wide, warm welcome from the Father, not merely as those who are freed from slavery, but those who are adopted as sons and daughters into the king's own household. Next week in Romans 8, 14, Paul says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are sons and daughters of God through the work of Christ, and we've received a warm welcome from the Father. Condemnation is gone. If you're not in Christ this morning, don't delay another minute. Flee the condemnation, the dread of condemnation for the anticipation of eternal life. Don't waste another minute trying to work yourself out of condemnation. You can't do it. Instead, embrace Jesus who died to set you free. Now, the third point here, Romans 8, 9 through 11, is because we have new life by the Spirit. We've been set free by the Son. We've been welcomed by the Father. Now we have new life by the Spirit. This is Paul's point in verses 9 through 11. Look first at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The evidence that we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, is the presence of the Spirit. If you're wondering, how do I know if I'm in the flesh or in the Spirit? It is the presence of the Spirit that causes us to know. It is the fact that God's Spirit dwells in us. And if the Spirit of God dwells, lives, is with, 
and in us, then we are not in the flesh. The presence of the Holy Spirit is guarantee of transfer. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is exactly what Jesus promised to the disciples in John 14. And by contrast, if the Spirit isn't dwelling in us, then we are kingdom rebels, living according to the flesh. And Paul is quick to point out that the presence of the Spirit doesn't make Christians sinless, but it does make Christians victorious. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body is dead because of sin. What does Paul mean? He means that Christians, though no longer condemned, still struggle with bodies corrupted and affected by sin. Christians still sin. And unless Christ returns first, Christians, the bodies of Christians will die. And this may lead some Christians in Rome and some Christians in Arlington to question the reality of our new life. Stubborn sin struggles may lead us to despair. Will I ever gain victory? Can I ever put sin to death? If the spirit is alive and condemnation is gone, then why do I still struggle? Paul wondered this. Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Will I, ever will I ever strangle my greed for more things? Will I ever starve my anger? Will I ever suffocate my grumbling heart? We are plagued with shame and self-condemnation, weighed down by humiliating discouragement that we are disappointing God and disappointing others. We are alive we are no longer condemned. The Spirit is alive in us, but that sin struggle holds. Christian, the message of Romans 8.10 is this. The Spirit's presence in our lives is a guarantee of victory. The Spirit's presence in our lives is a guarantee of victory. Our fight with sin may seem hopeless, but if Christ is in us, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If you are united by faith to Jesus, if you belong to him, then the Spirit is at work in your life. Your sin is a reminder that you still inhabit a sinful body. The Spirit is a reminder that that won't be the case forever. And don't despise the small things. An apple tree is an apple tree, whether the apples are small or normal sized. It's still an apple tree. Do you love the Bible? Do you love to pray? Do you hate your sin? Do you long for the salvation of lost friends? Do you see the evidence of the Spirit's fruit in your life? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. The fruit is evidence that the Spirit is at work steadily, consistently, over time, 
conforming us into the image of Jesus, steadily empowering us over time to hate sin and turn from it and to love righteousness and pursue it. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says, In Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Spirit's presence in your life as a Christian is a guarantee that the work that God started will be completed. He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now look at verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, if the Father's Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. If God could raise Jesus from the dead and God's Spirit is living in you, then God can raise you from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, then so will all who are filled with the Spirit. That's the promise of Romans 8, 10, and 11. There is no condemnation to dread. Anticipate eternal life instead. I urge you to imagine those two criminals on the crosses. Which one are you? Jesus hangs between the two, and on the one cross is a condemned criminal who denies that eternal life can be found through Jesus Christ. Incredibly, though condemned and dying at that moment, he denies that he needs saving at all. From his mouth comes scathing rebukes of Jesus. Mockingly, he rails against him. He is a kingdom rebel who will die separated from God and under judgment, condemnation, for the wages of sin is death. On that other cross, a likewise condemned criminal embraces eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Both are condemned, both are dying. The one says, no thank you. The other says, Lord, if possible, Give me entrance into your kingdom. That second criminal will die like the other one that day. But when he opens his eyes, he'll be in paradise with the Lord. And what gets him to paradise with Jesus? It's not his lack of sin. He's a criminal condemned to die. It's not his good deeds or his good efforts. There is no time for good deeds or good efforts for that man. What gets him into paradise is the object of his faith. He's putting all his eggs in Jesus' basket. He's wagering everything on the fact that Jesus is enough. Jesus did for this man what this man couldn't do for himself. Jesus fulfilled the law for this man through his obedient life, and Jesus absorbed the consequence for this man through his sufficient death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because God the Father, Son, and Spirit conspired together to see that their people were reconciled back to them. We have been set free by the Son. We've been welcomed by the Father, and we have new life in His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not merely creating us for relationship with you marked by love and joy, but coming after us when we fell, coming after us when we turned. Thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for sending the Spirit who takes your work of the gospel and applies it to our hearts. And so this morning, we thank you for the new life that we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.